Welcome to Ron's Rings. I'm Ron Rapitalo, your host. And I'm excited to introduce you to my fellow equity warrior, co-conspirator, and most of all, friend, Jonathan Santos Silva. He's the founder of the Library Institute, more importantly. Just a good dude. Just lots of interest. Um, he's had a diversity of people that he's got to know over the years and really bomb cool ass story that I think will resonate with a lot of you. I think most importantly, what I learned from his story that you'll hear in the episode is just how this ability to want to experience things and not thinking that a moment is a recipe for failure, but an opportunity to learn is something that I really embraced and has allowed Jonathan to just see so much, experience so much, and just get to meet so many incredible people who've taught him. So enjoy the episode. I'll see you on the other side. Jonathan Santos Silva, you are my first guest here on Ronderings. It's been a minute, been putting this on a minute of getting this out, man. But how you doing? I'm doing well. I didn't realize I was the first, so that's an honor and a privilege, man. I'm glad to be here and joining you on your show, man. Yeah, well, you gave me the privilege of being on your Board of Ed podcast and asked me to chop it up with you, was that two years ago, man? Yeah, time flies. Yeah, 2020, almost three years. Oh, goodness. And you go to Edlock in March, right? Am I going to see you yeah. there, brother? Yeah, man. Vegas, you know, I could use very, <laughs> I could use a lot less of a reason to go to Vegas, so I'm excited <laughs> to get to Edlock. <laughs> It might be a little different in terms of me chopping it up with you because the missus and the two girls are coming with me. So that's what's up. That's what's up. You know, I would love to bring my family, but, you know, trying to figure out the right place to go when I need to buy six tickets, you know, I need to be judicious. So, you know, what? we'll save it for another one. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, you got a gaggle, man. You'd be bringing this like you need the, the Flintstones caravan to go bring for you out. <laughs> I need to hire them. So then I can, Damn. you know, put it on the company because as it is right now, it's coming out of pocket. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, see, that's why you need to work at a for-profit, man. You need to switch that up. <laughs> that was part <laughs> of, like, my uh, deal when you signed me is that all of my travel includes, you know, free free plane for my family. Yeah, they'll be like, well, damn, we didn't know you had that many kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, wait a second, where would you have to cut your salary? Like, hot damn, what was that? Like 4K, a damn trip? Oh, we uh -huh. have to cut that shit down. They were like, um, Santos, we need to be talking about a vasectomy because if you pop out any more kids, we'll be broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing, man. Being in my late 40s, the missus and I have talked about kid number three and she's kiboshed that. She said, babe, I told my body, 40, that's it. Ain't nothing else coming out of this oven. I'm like, what about the accident, babe? It's like, well, we can't control that, but but I have conscious control over. Ain't no more kids. So we got our two and that's where we at. So you got two beautiful girls, so you can't be mad about that. And I feel I feel we're feeling we're almost there. I'm gonna be forty this year. Mm. And I'm yeah, not man. carrying the child. So I mean she's got some time, but I just think in terms yeah. of where our kids are and the we so our kids are nine, seven, five, and three, you know. By God's Ooh. grace, we kind of had them in a good, good enough split between them. Yeah. But I, I said, you know, we're off, we're off the routine now. So if we had one now, it'd be four years now. Let's not mess with it. It's a good <laughs> spread. They get along yeah, well. Man. They've all yeah. come out healthy. Praise God. So like, let's not fool with it. Praise, so unless there's a, God, man. you know, unless there's a oops, baby, which I'm hoping not. We'll be. This is this is the 
starting lineup as currently constituted. This is it. Oh, man. Well, Jonathan Santos. I see. Am I the only one who says your name in like like your entire name or do folks call it like what do folks call you? Like I, I know I call you Jonathan, but I feel like now being here on Ronderings, I just got to say Jonathan Santos Silva. My next question is, or am I just being a fool <laughs> like calling you by your full name? I'm being no, a fool, I, right? Dude, come on. No, come I me. appreciate it, but it's definitely few and far between. You know, folks, for whatever reason, I think they get intimidated by the length and like, well, how do I say this? And it's like, it's this, you say it exactly the way it looks, you know, you know, some Santos's, <laughs> you probably know some Silva's, so just put it together. Word. And then, you know, a lot of folks want to shorten Jonathan because even that's too long. But for someone to say Jonathan Santos Silva, that is my name. And there's power in, you know, a name and in calling all things in their right name. So I appreciate it, brother. See, and that's the way we're going to start. What is your story, brother? What is Jonathan Santos Silva's story? Yeah. Well, um, if you ask me this 10 times in 10 different settings, I'll probably answer it 10 different ways. But for today, you know, I start with I am the child of two Cape Verdean American parents. My father migrated to the U.S. with his family as a child, you know, before uh, middle school or junior high age in the early 1970s. The Cape Verde Islands were engaged in a, you know, a revolutionary war, right? A war for independence with uh, Portugal. And so my grandfather brought his family here. He'd already been going back and forth. My grandfather had citizenship because of his father, my great-grandfather. Um, but it was like, you know what? I don't think they ever planned to move to the U.S., but when the war broke out and my oldest uncle was, what do you call it, drafted to, to fight on behalf of Portugal, he made yeah. a decision to move my next uncle to the U.S. and then eventually to come and get my grandmother and all of the rest of the children. So, you know, that's my father. And those are my kids in the background. If you hear, I don't know. Hopefully my microphone isn't picking it up, um, but that's my father. Hey, man, Kate. like, look, my my, my my daughter, Sophia, Ava is going to wake up for a nap at five, depending on how much you <laughs> chop it up. This is going to be my fucking kids in the background. But you right, just got the right. road with it, man. The Rondings those podcast are... is about the full family. So, right. you know, folks got a problem Weird. with it. We ain't chopping it out. So Weird. Weird. I appreciate that. <laughs> so... You know, you might have the whole multi-generational uh, experience, but yeah, my my grandfather yeah. brought my dad here. My mm. mother, on the other hand, is multi-generational American. You know, her her family came here much earlier. We don't even necessarily know all of the details of how far it goes back, but my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, they all were born here. And so on that side, you know, still Cape Verdean, but American-based. So I was born to that family. We grew up in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, which is a, you know, small kind of densely populated urban area. At one time, it was known as, you know, for producing more shoes, you know, you know like footwear than any place else in the world. So we were the shoe city, real busy with that. Uh, but by the time oh, I yeah, came man. around, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Did not know that. I'm going to keep that yeah. in mind. Next time I hear Brockton, I'm going to think Jonathan Santos. You got to either think about shoes Boom. or boxers because we're also um, home to Rocky Marciano. And marvelous Marvin okay. Marvin Hagler, that's where they uh, uh, came up. I had this feeling there was something about when you said Broxton. I was like, wait a second, that must be somewhere in Mass where I've heard famous boxers, but I didn't know which one. Yep. So okay, yep. So you know the under, undefeated heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano, and then marvelous right. Marvin Hagler. You know, some consider him the greatest in his weight class. He lost to Sugar Ray Leonard. I've heard the whole all the stories. You have if you're from Broxton, you know. You know that they they the politics around the ring size and the, who the ref was and all the stuff. But Marvin Hagler was a beast, and I got to meet him once. But anyway, 
So I grew up there, mm. working class, really diverse. And I went, through, but I went through K twelve. I only had one, one teacher of color, one black female teacher, and uh, my whole time it was in tenth grade. Right before we left Brockton, you know, to move to the Cape, you know, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which was you know very white. We grew up in Bourne, Massachusetts, or finished high school in Bourne, Massachusetts. So that okay. was a very different experience. I mean, after growing up in a place where the kids that I was in classes with were from all over. Their families were from all over the world, you know, the Cape Verde Islands, Haiti, yeah. all over Europe, um, all over Latin America. You know, I had uh, uh, Filipino and Hmong friends, you know, so my friend set was really diverse. Then I go to this much smaller school, so from about 5,000 kids to about 800 kids, and there weren't many of us, right? There were yeah. three Filipinos in my high school and born, and they were brothers, <laughs> right? Like, that was it. And so- There it um, is, yep, yep. So- that I think uh, is a big part of who I am because I think early on I began to have those questions and wonders about like what does it mean to be black or what does it mean to be a person of color, what does it mean to grow up in diversity with diversity and then to to grow up partly without it and and also knowing that like no group is a monolith so growing up with white kids in Brockton who were who yeah. grew up with black and brown and all kinds of kids and so there was a lot of um very little that separated us and the way that we grew up we were like hey you know. And then to go to a place like Bourne, where most of those kids had never had meaningful interactions with folks of color. A lot of them right. were of a similar socioeconomic status. You know, they're well off. Their parents were educated. So they were also dope people. I, had, I still have good friends from my time in Bourne, but there was a lot that they were learning. They were beginning their journeys, whereas a lot of my friends growing up in Brockton like we're born yeah. on the journey, if you will. Like grew up in a yeah. diverse place and knew people who spoke many different languages and stuff. So... That was a big part of it. Then from there, I went to university in Boston, Massachusetts at Northeastern University. Okay. Boston is a, you know, it's not New York City, but it's a big city. It's a global city because of all the universities in and around it. You know, Boston and Cambridge, people from all over the world coming in, really uh, smart, diversely talented people. Yeah. But the history of Boston is still very segregated. And so a lot of times communities are isolated from one another. And so I think I had mm. made it an assumption in choosing to leave Bourne to go to Boston was like, I want more of the diversity that I had in Brockton, not realizing that the Brockton in a sense was an anomaly. Not all urban areas yeah. are as mixed as Brockton was. You know, there's a part of town where mm. this group lives or a part of time where that group lives. That's what Boston was like. And so I learned um, a lot of that and I started to find my voice, you know, some of the social issues and realizing that, looking back and realizing how even in Brockton where it was super diverse, a lot of the kids that I grew up playing with, by the time I was in ninth and 10th grade, we weren't in classes together. They had started to, even though we didn't notice much yeah. difference, education had started to sort kids. Yeah. And so our classes got wider can, can and Can I jump in? How, yeah. how did it impact you? Because it sounds like, Jonathan, your experience growing up was very similar to mine. Like I grew up in diversity. It's all that I know, but it happened in different ways, right? And I've also been in environments eventually where there wasn't a lot of diversity. And I made a lot of assumptions about what I would expect depending on where I was, whether it was high school or college or, you know, workplaces. And so when you saw that sorting start to happen, what'd you start asking yourself? Well, it wasn't really until later because going through uh, it was so subtle. So you would have yeah. in elementary, you would have a diverse homeroom, but then the reading groups you know, where, where we started sorting. So you'd have a, you know, the whatever, I don't remember if it was, you know, red group and blue group and green group or whatever, or yellow and right. whatever, and then math group. And so it probably started then, 
but we were still in the home uh, room together. We still had PE together. We still had music together. We still had, you know, lunch and recess. So I didn't realize. And then by the time we got to high school, I was the only, that I can remember, the only black kid in most of my core academics. So I would have my friends in Spanish. Yeah. Or I would have my friends in a PE, but they weren't with me. But it wasn't until like, I went to Bourne and then it, then it was like overwhelming. Like there's not even a lot of black people here. And right. then I go back to Boston and I start seeing segregation and then you start looking back and you're like, wait a minute. This isn't the beginning of it. This has been happening since elementary school. So that's where I, yeah, I was man. going to school for mm -hmm. undergrad in business. And that's when I first started saying, wait a minute, like I'm not smarter or more talented or better than the kids I started out with, but I, but somehow I made it here. Right. And this doesn't seem right. And so I started thinking about getting into education because I was like, there's got to be a way to make kids like me the rule and not the exception. And so that's when the, at first, I mean, I didn't go into education right away. Like that's later in the story, yeah. but that's when I first started to think like, there's something here and it happens yeah. in school. So it doesn't, uh, racism or, or, or white supremacy, the, the segregation, whatever, doesn't happen when we're adults. It starts way before that. We start to oh, realize absolutely. it and we experience yeah. it much more acutely as adults because we're, our, our brains have developed and we're like, wait a minute, but it started way before subtly and in, in quiet ways. We were just, we were just part of it growing up, you know? Yeah. I had a similar, I have a similar inflection point to you, Jonathan, where I always tell the story in middle school. So I was part of Gift and Talented in the old New York City Department of Ed. They had the SP classes in the late 80s, early 90s. And so, and it probably was in the 70s too. At some point it stopped. I don't remember when, but they started taking gift and talented out at the individual school level, right? And then they started putting in mass, which I think has its issues, but that'll be the next Jonathan Santo Silva, Ron Rapitalo episode of Board of Ed, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll save that for your podcast, right? But I still remember named it to kids who I started out with. And I'm gonna say their name specifically because you're gonna know what I mean. Shishalia, Anne-Marie, Rashid, and Ernesto started out with me and many other kids, but those were the kids who stuck out of leaving gifted and talented. And the question I had as a kid was, well, why are they leaving? I knew, I think from what I'd seen on test grades, cause we'd talk about like they were struggling, but I'm like, why weren't they supported? I just had a lot of questions. I didn't have a lot mm -hmm. of answers as a kid, but it stuck out because they just weren't, when I cut this down, they just, all the black students left after a while. I, I don't mm -hmm. remember any black students in my SP class who stayed through eighth grade. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was like that there were still some Latino kids who stayed in my class, but some did not, right? And so it just, it stuck out. It was like, it's the Latino, white, and Asian kids, right? Mm -hmm. The black kids fell in. So it was one of those things. And you could see it, it was the eye test of the kids that were in when they used to have, you know, classes by tiers, right? The three class, mm -hmm. the four class, the five class. That's where all the black kids were. And it just, yeah. You, you couldn't not tell, but I didn't have the right. language like like you to really understand, but I, I knew something was wrong in my body and my spirit. Mm. I just didn't know why. And similar to you, mm. it didn't get me immediately into education. It took, so I want to hear that journey. Like, how did you eventually get into being an ed, man? Yeah. So like when I got to Northeastern, I was an undergrad in business and uh, I started getting involved. I became like a big brother with the big brothers, big sisters of Massachusetts Bay. I had an awesome little brother, by the way. And a shout out to Richard and Elijah. So I got right. Richard and then he was supposed to get a big brother. And that dude showed up once, uh, not from the community, 
You know what I mean? Like they were Haitian and I was Cape Verdean. I grew up with mad Haitians. So I was like, bet, like sac this is passe, like home. Sac passe. Yeah, right? That's a talk. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's the only phrase I know is embarrassing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, dude showed up, younger uh, white guy. You know, well, we were, shoot, I was young too by at that point. And he yeah. like came, he hung out mm -hmm. with uh, Elijah one day and then never showed up again. So that just started kicking it with both of them. So just beginning to realize like the role I was playing in their lives uh, because their father was part of their lives, but not in the home. And so, you know, I think he lived in Florida. We were in Mass. So I didn't see him all the time. So to be able to be like mm. a bigger brother or like a young uncle type of figure and taking him out, going to do, going to the museum, going to the uh, movies, what have you, I saw the positive impact it was having in their lives. So that was like that and my own questions start simmering. I thought about changing majors, um, but like I had come into high school. I also did a gifted and talented middle school. So I came into, you know, knocked through high school, took a lot of the APs and whatnot. So I arrived with credits and I'm like, man, if I start over now, I'm going to be here mm. longer. And you know how you are when you're that age. Like, I'm trying to get out of school. I don't want to do more school. So I just like exactly. full steamed ahead. And a mm -hmm. big part of my vision was, I think that's when Oprah opened the the Girls' Academy in Africa. So I was like, I'm just going to get oh, yeah, really I remember rich. That. I'm just going to get really <laughs> rich and I'm going to start a school like Oprah. That was the plan. And so I, I graduated and the path to wealth <laughs> and the path to riches just didn't like make itself readily apparent. So I was actually very unhappy in the business world, working for large organizations. They were great companies, but I just wasn't happy. I didn't find that fulfillment. And I looked back and realized I really loved working with, uh, when I was volunteering with Richard and Elijah. I, I, I stuck with them for a long time. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I loved that part of my life. I loved yeah. the stuff that I had done as an undergraduate leader. So my things were simmering, but anyway, around 2009, the economy bottomed out. And I'm like, man, the job I have, I'm not happy. The whole economy me sucks. So I, I can take a risk now because I'm not losing much, right? I'll lose this job. People were like, well, how could you go right now? You know, how could you do this right now? I'm like, because what am I losing? So I ended up, I quit mm -hmm. my job. I packed my car up and I moved to yeah. California. To, I, I had got, you know, I talked to my uncle and aunt. They were like, yeah, come. Just to get a change of scenery. I was like, maybe I need to see another part of this country, another part of this Was world. that your first had, time in Cali or had my you first been time to in Cali? Cali? Nope. I had never been to Cali. Farthest I'd ever been from home was Virginia to my grandfather's yeah, that's house. That's ballsy, man, for you to move all the way out there, even family out there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like, again, Ooh. like the way I looked at it was I wasn't missing anything in the economy, right? It wasn't popping. And to this day, uh, almost 40, I had the same mentality that the worst thing mm -hmm. that could happen to me was I go out there and I fall on my face. And as long as I have enough gas money, I can get back home and, I'm, and I'll move in with my parents and get back on my feet. Like, I just always felt that way. Like, my parents supported us and believed in us. So at the minimum, there would be a couch for me, you know? So I went to my uncle's. My mm. uncle and my aunt were mad cool. Like I was just talking to my little cousin, one of my little cousins, because it was my uncle and aunt and then Scott and Lauren, my cousins, my little cousins. Scott was getting ready to go to school because I'm five. I was, by this point, I'm five years out of college. Scott's getting ready right. to go to college. So so I move into okay. his bedroom. He's like, see you, Johnny. Peace out. You know, I, you, know you can have my room. And Lauren <laughs> is like a li real little, much younger than him. She's in, uh, yeah, I think, kindergarten or first. And she's just like, wow. So my brother's leaving, but now I got my cool cousin. So... She was happy. She, you know, she wasn't alone at home. And so, again, seeing that uh, what was going on with her and her education early on, she was a really brilliant kid, Mo mm. the, like the most adorable kid. But she, she was hyperactive. Like not usually ADHD is boys. She was hyperactive. She had a hard time in like this really strict Catholic environment. 
My, a lot my of kids had a hard time in that strict Catholic Ooh, environment. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. You know, you know, and because they don't have to educate every kid. Like I'm, I'm not trying to de de denigrate Catholic schools, right? They, they do a wonderful service and especially in communities where the Catholic schools have like super low tuition and they're just like, they're serving the mission to educate like kids from working class and poor families. So I'm not trying to trash them, but when people are paying for the tuition, they don't have to put up with their kids. But in this case, they were, they were strict. They held a line. There's a yeah. lot of communication, but it was really hard on my cousin. And so I saw that. So like being there after school, helping her out and working with her and encouraging her. And then around that time, I meet the woman that I'm now married to. And she uh -oh. is a love story a, part a of the story. Yeah, man. Super talented, classically trained educator. Um, you know, she went to school for this. She went to Providence College. They have in, in Providence, Rhode Island, they have a, a really dope program. Or they did at that time. I don't know what they do where, um, it's not just like one semester or two semesters of student teaching, but like they had a lot of student teaching and hands-on experience. So when I met her and she starts breathing life into me, like, you know, you could do a yeah. lot more than what you're doing now. I was like renting cars, you know, and again, enterprise renting cars, a dope company. It just wasn't a fit for where my heart was. Like they're dope. They take care of people. They pay well. They have a lot of yeah. opportunities. My to second oldest brother, they're thrifty, man. And he had access yeah. to cars. It was a nice thing. And he had his engineering degree and didn't do anything with it because yeah. it was a nice lifestyle, man. It's like you get your, you get, yo, your, when you get you, your, your ride and you go. Back then, if you became a manager or like an area manager, not only would you have a, a really, you know, competitive salary, but you would also have access to vehicles. So you don't have to buy a car because you're going to have a car every night. Like there were, there are a lot of mm -hmm. benefits to working enterprise yeah, and there's, they invest a lot in people. And so I'm not putting them down at all. I learned a lot. And I and, and later in the story, a lot of what I learned at Enterprise comes to play. Uh, but at the time, I was just like, oh, this isn't it for me. This isn't it. And yeah. my future wife was like, you know, you can be a lawyer. You could be a teacher. Like, you have a big heart. You have a heart of people. There's something else. And so between her and my best friend that I met at Bourne, a, a military kid, mm -hmm. so one of the few other black kids, he was going into TFA. He got in. And he was going to go to Jacksonville. He's like, bro, you should do TFA with me. And I kept saying, no, no, no. I finally applied. This is the interesting part. So by this point, as I'm applying, I start to fall for this woman. I'm like, man, she's so dope. Like God put her in my way for a reason. Like, he, he put her for a reason. She is so dope. So we, we're seeing each other and I'm applying and she's supporting me through the application. Like I actually did my observation because at that time you had to do an observation of someone teaching as part of your application process. I went observing mm. her class. I'm like, yo, she's off the hook, yo. And she was teaching kindergarten through second grade in a self-contained special ed classroom with kids with Down syndrome, yeah. autism, and other, you know, severe uh, learning differences. Okay. So these kids, and I'm watching them and they're yeah. like, they're, they're like doing a lot of the things that you would expect any kid of their age to do. Like certainly some of them you know, were behind, right? But they're doing phenomenal work. And as I'm asking her things, she's talking about how some of the kids arrived to her, they weren't even potty trained. No one before had thought that they were capable of anything and they never spoke that stuff into the parents' lives. So the parents were kind of resigned to the fact that like, I'm going to be taking care of this child forever. They're going to never be able to do anything for themselves. And Vicky just wow. refused to believe that. And so she's like, first I had to potty train them. Then we start learning letters. Then we start doing, then we start doing this. And so that's, I saw that and I'm like, yo, I, I want to do this. I want to do this. So I get into TFA and they asked me to, you know, where I want to go. And I'm, I'm reading everything up and I, and I get to South Dakota and I'm like, South Dakota, what the hell is in South Dakota? <laughs> Did you pick South Mount Dakota? Rushmore? Well, at first I was like, what the heck is there? Like, I don't know nothing about South Dakota. And then right. I start reading the materials 
And like in mm. the first page, it says something to the effect of 100% of our core members are placed in schools on reservations. And for a lot of mm. different reasons, that just hit me really powerfully because that was an experience yeah. that I, I didn't have exposure to. I never thought about really. And I was like, wow, that what an experience yeah. that would be. And so I initially was prepared to put South Dakota as my number one choice. And then I was like, but I'm serious about this woman. And so I'm talking to my dad and he's like, oh, you think she's going to quit her job in LAUSD to go live with you in the countryside somewhere that you've never been before? So like, you're right, you're right. So then I think about him like, where would she go? And I'm like, okay, she's already in LA Unified. So I'll, I'll put LA right. number one. And then I go, well, if you have to go anywhere and start over, Hawaii sounds pretty dope. So then we put Hawaii number two. And then Why you know, we start that? going okay. down. And then okay. like down the list, I think around like 10, I put South Dakota finally. Like, okay, I put it there. I'm like, okay, I put it here. And then if I get it, I get it, right? I didn't put it first. And so I put South Dakota there. I, I rank all whatever 30 some regions there are. And then I send it off. Yeah. And then I start praying. I start praying so hard. Because I'm, mm. I'm a new Christian I, at that point. I, I got saved in a little independent Baptist church in Castaic, okay. which is in the Santa Clarita Valley, way up you know, north of LA. Like it's the farthest part of pretty much uh, Los Angeles County before you hit the grapevine and then you're way up. You're going way up to Lancaster and all, you know, uh, all right. these other places in the desert. So I'm way out there on a, at a, in a truck stop of a town and I get invited to this church and I go and I'm like, whoa. And so that begins my real uh, personal spiritual journey. I grew up Catholic, but not with like yeah. an active faith, very much like the ritualistic, right? Yeah. So yep. this is Same when it here. became real. So I start mm. praying hard and I'm like, you know, Lord, if, if this is for me, send me to South Dakota. If this is really for me, I, I, I put it way down, but if it's for me, send me to South Dakota. And then boom, I get South Dakota. So I'm like, yo, this is it. I'm going to South Dakota. We're going to be on the res. I don't know nothing about the res, but we're going to do this. And then I asked my wife to go. I'm like, oh, my, this woman I, I really care for. I'm like, hey, come to South Dakota with me. I'm gonna, I, I got into TFA. And she goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, I'm not going. <laughs> see, I, so, see, see I, I knew there was going to be a pivot somewhere. I thought she was like, of course, Jonathan, you're the love of my life. And the, the, the rest of the nah. Hallmark movie continues. Nope. Nah. And, she was uh, like, nope, nope. Because mm. I mean, she was, uh, she was doing well, doing very well in LA. And, they, you know, there was uh, yeah. nowhere but up. Um, and so I was like kind of down and talked to my dad. And my dad's like, well, you, you know, don't beg a woman. You know, if, 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 she's, if it's meant to be, she'll come. But um, don't beg a woman. You know, this is player player kind of advice, right? <laughs> you know, that's so that's I'm like, what it right, sounds right. like. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not gonna beg a woman, right? And then I'm I'm working. I was renting cars. I'm working. I'm like, no, I have to tell her. I and then so I go back to her. I ask her again. I'm like, I know you said no, but I really care about you. I really I really want you to come with me. You know, think about yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm renting cars with my boss Ray, and we go to stop to drop some cars off uh, to check and see if some of our oil changes are done, so I can pick up a vehicle. And while I'm waiting right. in the truck, she calls me. She tells me, I'm going to come. So I'm like jumping in the parking lot of this, uh, you know, the oil change place. I'm all, I'm hyped. Wow, I man. haven't even told Enterprise yet. So then, you know, long, you know, to jump forward, we moved to South Dakota. Sight unseen. Okay. She had never been on the res. I had been for a week part of the induction training. And then from there, it's off to the races. We taught there for a couple of years, had in the most amazing time. I learned so much. I mean, one of the big things was I had so many preconceptions about what it meant to be, um, you know, live on in the country, and none of which were diverse. And I get to the res, and I, there are there are white principals, but there are native principals. There are native superintendents. There are native school board members, like native mm. tribal council members. It's the first time I ever lived anywhere where 
uh, political leadership was people of color. They were, you know, brown folks. Wow. Their school leadership okay. were brown folks. And so even though mm. I don't identify as native, identifying with the global majority, I was like, wow, this is dope. Mm. You know, I'm, you know, this was it really almost like dope. it brought you back to Brockton. Like I almost see like a full circle, right? Of how there, there are themes of Jonathan that you talked about that I would pull out here, right? This deep faith, mm -hmm. right? That allowed you to move to Cali, right? Knowing that you hadn't been there, but you had, you had this deep faith knowing that you can come back home. You would still have a bed to come back to, right? And that you can fail, but failure wasn't something you were worried about because of the deep faith you had. And there's also, I think the second theme I'm hearing in your story is this, because of that faith, deep belief in self, but mm. your before she became your wife, it's not like your wife had a lot more faith in you before you saw yourself with that, right? No doubt. 100%. Because there were things, I just, isn't that the beauty of finding a, a, a beautiful partner, man? They see even better for you than you ever thought was possible for you, man. Right. 100%. 100%. That is true. The help meet, you know, that's what mm. they talk about in the Bible. And and people, you know, when the Bible talks about a help meet, they're talking about when they use that word meet in the old King James, it's like fit or like appropriate or worthy, right? So not that the woman right. has to be worthy of me, but that like she's the right fit. She's the appropriate fit for you. She's somebody who makes you mm. better and holds you up. And in, in, in turn, you can hold her up. And that's what I found in her, somebody who saw a guy who I was beat down by circumstances of feeling like I wasn't achieving my full potential, but I actually didn't know what that potential was. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, if you don't know where, you are, where you're trying to go anywhere, we'll do. I was settling because I didn't know where I was going. And she was mm. like, mm, you could do something. She's the first person, you know, that invited me into the profession. Um, I got the wow. real pleasure to interview Sharif El Meki, an awesome brother uh, in the game. Sharif is on my he's a, he's on my Ronderings uh, hit list, man. Hey, gotta get him. Gotta I gotta chop it. it up with him too. Yeah, man. He talked about how for him and his uh, fellow black men in the teaching game, on average, it wasn't until high school or college when they were first invited to join the profession. But for their white female colleagues. Mm. On average, it was early elementary, second, third, fourth grade. Someone goes, you know, you're really a kind person or you're really smart. You could be a teacher. It, it was like, think about that. Eight, nine, 10 years or more difference. For me, I was, what, 27 or 26 when my wife was like, you could be a teacher, right? And by that, I mean a, a, an educator inviting you into education. For, for white women on average, in his experience, it was second, third grade. For the brothers, it was like high school, college. For me, it was 27. But my future wife said, you could be a teacher. And so that set me on that path. Like I said, we start doing it. Like it was it was a full circle in a sense of, of Brockton because even though not everybody around me was Kate Verdian in Brockton or on the res, there was this sense of being home and being warmly welcomed. Like that is yeah. something about Lakota people. You know, so the people in the, uh, in the history books that you can learn about the Sioux people, S-I-O-U-X, yeah. they don't call themselves that typically. Mm -hmm. Most native people that I know will call themselves usually and, and the most not all by their tribal affiliation yes. so the folks where i i was were oglala lakota lakota being the language oglala lakota and lakota people not just those folks but even the sichangu lakota over in rosebud lakota and dakota people are generally so warm and welcoming when they see mm. that you have an open heart and so i was so supported 
And there was a lot of patience as I was learning to be a math teacher, right? Like I was like, unfortunately, yeah. it was on, some of it was on the job training, like with their kids and, they, you know, there's patience and support and encouragement. And thankfully that I had no, enough way going too many first year teachers that had to go through that experience. Yeah. Man. Yeah. My, you know, I mean, the, the thing was I had a lot of youth exposure and experience, so I knew how to deal with kids, but like yeah. lesson planning, boy, man, that, that was a trial by fire, learning that stuff on the run. Yeah. But that was my experience. So I did that. Then we moved back to Rhode Island or we moved to the East Coast back. It's back to Rhode Island for my wife because I said she went to Providence College. She grew up in Providence. I'd never been. I never lived in Rhode Island. Um, so I moved to Rhode Island. I work on TFA staff for a year. I end up becoming the high school designer and then principal for a charter network. Got to build a school with the most, some of the most amazing kids. I had some of the most mm -hmm. amazing kids in Kyle and on in South Dakota, and I had more yeah. uh, amazing kids in Rhode Island. I did that experience, got into consulting after it because it kind of fell off at that charter. Like I, I was definitely down with the kids, which put me at sometimes at odds with the all white leadership at the board and network level. I was the first black leader they ever had in the organization, and so mm. that was hard for them to deal with when this young brother is like you know, saying this doesn't work and holding a line, but you know, it is what it is with learning. Yeah. So then from there, I get into consulting a little bit with this awesome organization called the Highlander Institute, you know, coaching teachers and leaders around customized or personalized instruction, you know, like blended Is that how you met Malika? That. Is it? Yes. I, well, so I met Malika okay. while I was on staff with TFA. And as I was getting ready to roll out into the principalship, she was coming in. And so I, she told uh. me this joke, like, I came in and I met the staff and I see there's a black man on staff. I'm so excited. There's going to be, you know, uh, another black yeah. man. And then you're gone when I arrived. So that's her, our joke. And then she kind of, when I was at Highlander, <laughs> yeah. then eventually she comes to join Highlander and I leave Highlander. So she messes with me a lot about that. That's my homie though. So when I was at Highlander, I ended up getting okay. invited to apply for school systems leaders fellowship with TFA. Something that I had applied mm -hmm. for when I was at the charter and TFA had um, done a restructuring, so they ended up putting the program on hiatus. So I forgot about it. Then they reached back out a year or two later, whatever, and go, we're reopening the program. We have your app. Wondered if you're still interested. I was like, yeah, bet. Let's do it. So I'm at Highland at this point. I get into the fellowship, but they say, you're going to need a different job because part of the our theory of action is you need to be working while you're learning, like in the at the network level. Right. So that's what get me back to South Dakota. I end up joining NACA Inspired Schools Network as their the director of education, uh, as they expanded into it. supporting traditional schools. So NACA generally helps incredible indigenous leaders and non-indigenous, but a majority indigenous leaders launch charter schools in indigenous communities through a, a community design process. But in South Dakota, we don't have charter legislation. We did not then, and they still do not. And so we were supporting existing schools through transformation. I didn't have anybody on staff. So I got that job. I got the fellowship and I moved back to South Dakota. And so this time I go back, not as a newlywed, because mm. I, I married Vachara and then we moved to the res. This time we went back. I went back. Well, I went back first alone, waiting for them, making a, a way. And then my wife comes with three children, you know, two toddlers and a, and, and a newborn. I come back, we, we drive out, and then we end up yeah. having our fourth child there in, in um, five years of working and living in uh, South Dakota for our second stint. I'm working in wow. education in indigenous communities. So what was the difference in the first homecoming versus the second homecoming? Obviously, aside from you coming with a family in a different role, like what was mm -hmm. different when you came back? When I went in the first time, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. 
I came out of Institute. Like I really did dive into Institute. I mean, number one, it was, I had been in the field for five years. So like, whereas for some of the, you know, new core members, it's like, man, I just left the dorms. Now I'm back in the dorms and I'm eating all cafeteria food. I'm like, yo, I've been on my own paying rent. You know, now at that point I was living with my uncle, so I wasn't, but I was like, I'm, I would have been on my own having to figure out how to fend for myself. You would put me back in the mm. dorm and, and give me some food, yo, bet. So I was diving into the training full on. But I still, with all of that, I mean, you know, in a summer, you don't get, yeah. you can't possibly get it all. So I was learning, you know, drinking at the fire hose that first two years. When I get back five years later, I had worked on staff. So I d helped develop other new teachers at TFA. I had worked at the Charter Network. So I'd seen the inner workings, you know, not to say that the the Charter Network was the be all end all. There was a lot of dysfunction in terms of like, we were supposed to be, supposed to be intentionally diverse, but there was still a lot of, I think, privilege that came with whiteness and wealth. So that right. was unaddressed. But as far as the academic side, there were a lot of things that worked smoothly. So I got to see what that looked like. Then I went to Highlander and I got to get into the traditional public. That was like the first time I was working in the traditional public schools that were not on the res, that were not like a tribally controlled school. So I got to see PPSD, you know, Providence Public Schools. I got to see Ponagansett High School, all these high schools and middle yeah. schools of different, you know, socioeconomics and black, white, whatever. I got to see a whole cross section of schools. So then when I go back to the res, I can really speak to, I've seen this work elsewhere. I know that it can work here. You know, and also I think having lived off the res after living on the res, when I went back, I was like, there was, there was the thirst was real. I knew what it was like to live somewhere where you were welcome, right? And where your mm. race and how you looked in the matter. Like my kids had never had a black teacher before me, but the reality was they were so much open and judging me on how I showed up that it was like a, yeah. it was a minute for some of them to realize I was black. They were like, I'm like, well, what do you think I was? They were like, I don't know. I just never thought of it. They'd never had thought about it because I was like, mm. yo, he came in from the jump. He he showed that he cared. He worked really hard. He was here after school to do tutoring. He was come to our game. So he was a teacher, period. He was Jonathan. That was it. Then they yeah. learned later. Then they would be like, well, oh, you're black. So is this true? Is that true? Then, you know, they're trying to like really flesh out their understanding. But that like open armed welcome, I was missing it. I was wanting it. Not that I, you know, received hate. But like, you know how it is in the East Coast. People don't greet you. People don't be friendly with you. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, keep my head down. I'm going to yeah. work. Don't look at me. Don't say hi. So going back, there was that hunger. And having had my own children, and you know this, it's one yeah. thing when you're a teacher or an educator and you're like, these are my kids. I love my kids. You're talking about your students. And you really mean it. But when you have your own kids and your capacity to love like multiplies and like, or like is exponentially grown, then when you love kids, you love them on a whole nother level because you really know what it means to give your whole self over to another being, right? So then I'm coming into the education and I'm working with incredible school leaders um, and fellows that are trying to transform their schools. And when they're like, we need this for our kids, that's tugging at my heart on a whole nother level because I'm mm. like, yeah, that's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for JJ. That's what I want for Vonica. That's what I want for Asa. And then eventually that's what I want for Malachi when Malachi came around. So I'm moving on a whole nother level. You know what I'm saying? The other part of that yeah. is again, because of seeing yeah. the game at different levels, I'm thinking of different levers. When you're a teacher and you have 20 kids or whatever in your classroom or 16 kids in your classroom because our school was, was small, I can at most impact 16 kids right now in this hour. 
And then I have another 20 the next hour. I have 18 the hour after that, whatever it may be. I'm 120 kids or whatever all day. But yeah. when I started impacting leaders, I'm thinking about hundreds of kids across this reservation that I could impact. So that was a whole nother level. I started thinking differently. When I was a teacher before, I could be honest and say, I had a little bit of that attitude of like, when I looked at somebody and I didn't think that what I was observing was enough, that I was like, Psh, this bum ass, you know, teacher or whatever. Cause I'm not knowing, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? I don't know their struggle. I don't know what mm -hmm. they're going through. I just see what I see. Right. And being a person of color, having gone through schools or classrooms or places when I wasn't always loved and supported and the environment wasn't made for me, I did have very little stomach when I saw my native kids having a struggle with that. And I yeah. didn't have any grace for the adult. When I came back after being a principal, what I realized was like, I might not have any patients internally. I may have this sense of urgency, but if I burn this teacher, if I drive them out, what am I going to do? I'm going to teach all these classes. How can I, I cannot be in eight different classrooms at the same time. I cannot be in 10 different classrooms at the same time. So I had to reset my frame to look at adults as my students, not in, in a, um, I'm better than you way, but if I don't have 16 mm. kids in the classroom, I have every adult in this building. So how do I right. cultivate the culture for them? How do I support them so that they can move things for the kids. So I started looking at levers to increase my impact. That was a big part of the difference the second time around when I was going in. I was thinking yeah. about leadership in much different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating, Jonathan, about your story is this foundation of faith and generosity, right? And you had it, I think, a good deal of your life before you, you came back to the reservation the second time on this deeply individual level, and it started to scale. And what it sounds like started to happen is, and this leads to my next question, this idea of how do you scale generosity, right? Mm. Is the way I'm thinking about it, because if I go back to when I met you at Edlock, this is the reason why you and I are chopping it up here. You're one of the very first people I met at Edlock. I had seen your name. Jonathan Santos Silva, TNTP bridge fellow, like you, you making all the accolades, right? I was like, this brother's doing it. And like when I knew I had the opportunity to meet you, you just chopped it up. The same warmth and generosity you had growing up in Brockton as a Cape Verdean kid and growing up diversity and all the things you just talked about. And that moment I met you at Edlock, I'm like, this is a dope ass motherfucker who gets it, right? And so... Now you're learning these leadership lessons. If I fast forward to today, like mm -hmm. in your like broader work and impact, like how are you scaling generosity? How are you thinking about that? I think, you know, I mean, where it starts, honestly, the spirit of it comes from my upbringing. My mother, I don't know if she said, I really, I have to ask my siblings. I've been wondering it and, and then I lose yeah. the thought, but it comes back is mm. my mother used to always tell me to whom much is given, much is required, which I didn't learn Amen. until later was in the Bible. I thought she made that up, you know? <laughs> you know I thought my mom was, I mean, she, I still think she's pretty dope, but I thought, I was like, damn, yeah. mom, that's moms, brilliant. Moms make up a lot of stuff, <clears throat> man. Then you find out like, oh, wait a second, that was actually in like the Bible or it was yeah, from some I, commercial or like, wait a second, <laughs> it was in some TV show that she watched all the time and now I get it because I'm watching the same damn TV show. Right? So she kind of <laughs> instilled that in me. That was her mantra for me. It became kind of the guiding principle of my life. And so I always, she was programming or conditioning me to be other focused. So that was the beginning of it. Flashing forward to your question to being an adult, what I add to that is when I was on the res the first time, there was, there were many phenomenal educators. And if I tried to name them, I would leave someone out. So I'm just going to only name one. 
Um, okay. He's gone all. He's made the journey to the other side. He's with the ancestors. He's with the Lord. Ed, young man afraid of his horses. That was his last name. Ed, young man afraid of his horses. That was okay. actually a name he reclaimed. That was his ancestral name. So he reclaimed that. Beautiful. But when I met him, okay. he was definitely OG on campus. Like when I met him, actually, I came in. I came into the building my first time, and uh, he's sitting on a the the de a table in the cafeteria. The cafe all, and all the tables are now. This is one. He's sitting there chopping it up with some of the others. And we come in the back door, and so they're there. So I just, you know, being me, I'm like, oh hi, and I reach my hand. I was like, I'm Jonathan, and he goes, I'm Ed, young man, afraid of his horses. But when he said Ed, young man, I thought he was calling me young man. So then we right, went, that's what I would have thought horses. too, because I'm like not exposed. So I'm like, what? What are you talking about about the horses? <laughs> anyway, I'm like, all right, I'm trying to go to the training. So he points to the training. Later, Word. I realized that was his name. He was introducing himself, and he just maybe he sensed my heart being open and, and really wanting to learn whatever it was, but he really took an interest in me and he began to cultivate my leadership. And so from early on, my second hour prep became Ed's class. You know, I would teach first period and then third through the rest, but second period, I went to Ed's class. I would go sit with him by the front door on his little milk um, carton stand or whatever it was. And I'd sit next to him and he'd have his arms crossed looking at the school and making sure he was surveying the territory and making sure kids were where they're supposed to be. Cause he had sort of like a, uh, security type of role. I mean, honestly, I don't know what Ed's actual role was. He did a little everything, but he used to take me under the learning tree on those days. And so he would teach me the history, culture. And one of the things he taught me then, he began teaching me and then I, I learned and it was um, re-taught to me from others was this idea of us all being related. When you end a prayer in Lakota and Dakota, you say they say, mitakoye owasi, uh, we are all related. And it's like, that's like the amen. And it's the reminder that at the end of the prayer, where we have asked creator for this, that, the third, thanked him for this, that, and the third, whatever all those things are, to close the thought, like amen is supposed to be like, in a, we're in agreement. Yeah. Yewasi is, we're all related. It's a reminder that not just humans, all humans, but all of life. So the animals, the trees within Lakota uh, spirituality, as I understand it, the earth, and the rocks, yes. everything in creation is a relative. Mm -hmm. And so you move yeah. in life in ways, you try anyway when you're trying to, you're trying to move in ways where you are being considerate of your life and its interconnectedness to all other forms of life. And so that's where the desire to try to figure out how you scale generosity comes from. And, and that's what guides my kind of, or animates my actions as the founder of the Liber Institute. You know, the Liber Institute, that Liber mm. word and our imagery don't come from Lakota or indigenous culture because I was really trying to be thoughtful not to appropriate something. So I tried to yeah. pick words and images that meant something to me and would broadcast what I feel. And Liber comes yeah. from, you know, it's the same root as the word liberation. It means the free ones, you know, yes. and it's about the ongoing process or the journey to work out our freedom, not just for ourselves, but together being interconnected. And so I talk a lot about in my work about walking with relatives. This is something that comes from Ed's teachings and that's been seconded in his own way by my big brother, Duji Brownbull, Daryl Brownbull, from, who's also from that community. That's the family yeah. we were adopted into. They're, he's my big brother. I've had his daughter. I've had his nieces and nephews. Just He's an Beautiful. awesome dude. But he also taught me this idea of walking with our relatives. If I want to run Liber, and make the most money I can. I can convince people to do work with me. I can be 
I don't have to give them the whole story. I can try to be, you know, really warm and welcoming and have my ulterior motives. I could do that to try to maximize my my income potential. But on your question about um, uh, spreading and scaling generosity and kindness, if I look at my potential clients as relatives and I and I desire to walk with them, it's not about coming to them with something that I've crafted, something that I can make a lot of money on, like, you know, with a good margin that I want to sell. Hey, you know, Ron, I know you just said this is all your problems, but here's what you need. Buy this package of nine PDs or sign me, sign up for, you know, yeah. 50 million hours of coaching. No, it's Ron, if he's a relative, let me listen. What are you, what's going on? Tell me about the school. What are you all working on? What are you struggling with, right? Try, seeking to understand at a deep level the vision that already exists within the community for this school, trying to identify the leaders who already exist in the community for this school, and then creating a plan together about how we prepare those leaders to enact that vision. All right, so that requires a lot of courage because you have to be willing to ask questions and demonstrate that uh, I don't know all the answers. I really don't know what y'all need. Yeah, it has mm. to have humility to say, hey, the people who yes. might know a bit more about this, I mean, I'm saying might, but really they definitely know way more than you. Like, think about it. If I dropped in from LA and, and to Kyle and think I know everything, what an idiot, right? How how pompous would I need to be to think that I know more about this place and, and more what they need than they do? So you start with that humility and that bravery, and then you move with courage around digging into the hard work and working alongside people, right? My vision of leadership my strongest vision example of leadership, other than the Eds of the world and the Doogee Brambles of the world who, who yeah. walked with me as a relative, as a brother, as a nephew, and said, I'm going to invest in this person knowing that there's nothing he can do for me. They didn't have to give yeah. me the time that they gave me. Ed did in, in his life and that Doogee still gives to me in, my, in his life now. They didn't have to. They did it anyway. And so mm. that's what they instilled in me, this idea of walking with my relatives. But other than them, the best example I have of leadership, I was going through training to be uh, for organizing, broad-based organizing. And so I went out to Vallejo, uh, California, and saw this uh, white brother um, in a gray suit preparing this multi-ethnic group of women, majority Latinx, to do a public action with their city councilmen and whatnot. They were going to pin them down on some commitments. And he's yeah. walking us through what we're doing. This is what's going to happen. Da, 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 da. The, the women are getting it ready. And then we go back later and the vent goes off and this little grandma's doing this and this mom's doing this. And all the women are just boom, boom. And they're pinning them down and they're translating in English to Spanish. And all this dope stuff is happening. And the white brother's nowhere to be seen. He on the stage. He's on the side of, because we're at the Catholic church in the gym, right? You've been in the yeah. Catholic gym, you know, basketball mm, is important to the Catholic. Yeah. We're having mad basketball mm. leagues, okay? And um, <laughs> and his brother's just walking back and forth, pacing, keeping an eye on the crowd, making sure everything's going down. And and if you hadn't have been there earlier, you would be like, what's this random white dude doing here? Because there wasn't a lot of white people in this neighborhood. Right. They were fighting, by the mm. way, to get, you know, lights put in to have safe crossing for the elders and the children in the community that were walking to home to school and, and to church and all this stuff. And these streets are busy and people are whipping through and they're trying to make their community better. He didn't come up with that. They elevated that that was the need. And so he had been working on that for months with them. And then when wow. the time to shine came, he didn't have no speaking role. He was a non-speaking role. That tied into what Ed was teaching me, what Doogee taught me. And I was like, that's 
what real leadership looks like when you are not of the community. When you are trying to be a relative to Native people or a relative to Black people or relative to Asian people and you're not of that group, you you definitely need to access all your knowledge, all your skills, whatever, and put it at the you know to the community. Like, hey, how can I help? You know, for sure. However, you have to be willing to play that organizer's role. I'll, I'll prepare. I'll right. help. I'll do whatever. But when it comes time down to it, I need to be preparing y'all to lead this because I may come and go, but y'all, this is your land. This is where you're from. This is your place. This is what you love. And nobody is going to be more passionate, more compelling and communicating this stuff than you. And so, and then if you have a privilege, then yes, use that privilege like a crowbar to open doors and to prop those doors open for the people that you're working with to lead. But that's what taught me about, you know, trying to scale generosity and kindness was demonstrating mm. it through life. I'm here and I'm going to yeah. put everything I have, if it's money, if it's time, if it's expertise, if it's, you know, coaching and mentoring, I'm going to do all that. And then when it's time, I'm, no, 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 you're going to do this because I know you can do it and I'm going to be right here while you do it, right? Then when you do mm. that, the, that, if that, that's the archetype of leadership I try to, in my best um, self, try to model so that then the native leaders that we're working with, the teachers and the principals can do that. Yes. So then by just a natural default, their vision of leadership, they don't know the white guy. They don't know that story. But if, if it's me, then so be it. Well, Jonathan, man, he did this, that, and a third. But then when it came down to it, we led. The original vision was ours. He just asked the questions. The the actual, you know, pinning down the, the, the public action, we did the work. He just prepared us for it, right? Right. We get the credit. We, it was our vision. It was our work. And it's for our community. It's for us. It's by us. We did it. And, mm. and it, it also starring Jonathan, you know, and Jonathan, you know what I mean? How they, you know how they do that? Yeah. But the names above the name, the, you know, if this is a movie, right? The names above is. Seeing the Broadway theater lights. Yeah, yep, man. Yep. Oh, They're on the marquee, God. not me. Jonathan, man, wish we had more time, but I got one last question for you. Remember when I mm -hmm. talked about book ending this yes, conversation? Sir. I don't know what's your story. You've dropped so many ronderings during this. So I'm going to ask you, imagine you're writing the rondering. So it's got to be something like, you know, not the full story, but like something that would feel like you can put on a LinkedIn or Facebook status update, mm -hmm. right? What's mm -hmm. the ronding you want to have our audience leave away with before we, we part ways, brother? It has to be um, the walking with relatives. Mm. It has to be that. It, you know, yeah. especially for, you know, whether uh, if they're, if you're a, 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 an ally or co I like to think of it as co-conspirators, right? Because ally, My I mean, I think of ally, I mean, look at this, uh, what was it? President Obama was in, we had certain alliances. President Trump came in, we left some of those alliances. Now President Biden goes in, we're back in some, alliance can come and go. It comes with convenience. And I'm not trying to pick one of those presidents over the other. That's not my point. But my point is it's still America. And yet, boom, 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 things change. But a co-conspirator, when you're the co-conspirator, my fingerprints is all over the scene with you. You know, my, my, my hair strands, my DNA is at the scene of the crime. Like I was at the march. I was, when we were pinning down the, uh, the councilman, I was there. I'm on the email chain. Da, da, da. I can't distance myself if this no longer suits me politically. Now I'm in it. It's like the, I think, what is it? Is it Martin Luther King that talked about the um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who talked about uh, our emancipation, our freedom being inextricably woven in with the others. That's the only way you truly mm. can be a co-conspirator is if you say, even if 
I am the most privileged identity in America, white, male, Protestant, heterosexual, whatever, wealthy. Yeah. I'm not really free. I'm not really free until all my brothers and sisters are free. My black, my Latinx, my Asian, my indigenous, my gay, my every, all, my trans, my all my brothers and sisters who were all free. I'm not free. That's walking with relatives. And then saying, okay, so whether then if in that position as an ally or excuse me, co-conspirator, we're figuring out what are the ways that I show up for my people that's not about me getting the shine. It's not about me yeah, getting the credit, but leveraging what I have to support these folks and working out our freedom together. That's what walking relatives is. It's about really truly loving people enough to say, I am more invested in you being freer and being liberated and being able to exercise self-determination and sovereignty and how you live, the choices you make for your family and the, your education and where you live and all those things for your family. I am way more interested and invested in that than about who gets credit and about who gets shine. That's walking with relatives. And when you do that, the other rewards do come. You know, you have enough. You will always have enough because even if you don't have enough from the, the, the salary and whatnot, when I lived in Kyle, let me tell you this, show. I know you said quick, but when I was in Kyle. It's your floor, Jonathan. Keep yo, going, dog. brother. Let me tell you. When I was in Kyle, I bought brand new tires on a $30,000 salary, okay? I bought all four tires on my car. And then <clears throat> there was like a, a gang initiation in the area. And part of the gang initiation was they went and they had to pop tires. So we came out of a powwow, an actual powwow. And mad cars, tires, all four tires was busted, popped out. And so, no, you know, we left the car there. I had to walk home. It wasn't yeah. too far. Okay. Okay. And then at the next, so that was like Saturday. On Monday at school, all of my colleagues are going down to the business office. And they're like, yo, you need to go to the business office because the school has some money. They're giving us money to fix our tires. So I'm like, okay, bet. So I go. Business manager is like really apologetic. And she's like, it's actually not school money. It was like a government grant or a tribal grant or something that was set aside specifically for serving native families and because these educators were tribal members and they were from the community they were able to use it for their tires they didn't have any money for um for me and i wasn't mad i was like oh okay no no doubt like i just got these damn tires i gotta get new more before yeah. the end of the day my colleagues the native colleague when they came out like, oh they gave me money i said no they didn't have money they didn't have money for me it was for tribal members they raised the money they went around to all the classrooms and told all the teachers hey you know uh, and, and to other people like, you know, Jonathan and Vicky, they had been, you know, you've seen them being in our community and working for our kids and stuff. They just had all their tires popped and they can't get the money. They raised whatever, 600 and some dollars for me to get four new tires for my car. And that one day. Wow. They wow. were walking with me as a relative. Like, I know that that money was a difference maker for some of them. That would have been, uh, yeah. you know, going to bills or to groceries and whatnot. Groceries did or something. Oh, absolutely. Take care yeah. of me. And I use that to wow. say, when you're really a part of a community... You don't suffer alone. You don't struggle alone. You don't be alone. You're together. And so if you move like that and you're treating all the people that you're serving as relatives, your team as relatives, your employee, like I have a team, a staff, they work for me technically, right? I don't just be thinking about how do I get the most out of them? I'm like, how do I give to them? How do I make sure that they're full so that they can, you know, pour from full cups to the people we serve? When I, as long as I keep yeah. doing that, I, I have always been, God has always provided, always put people like the Brown Bulls and Ed, Nanette, Kills in Water, Bim Puyer, all the people that has been on the, 
Rosemary Claremont, Nora Antoine, Dr. Nora, all these people along the way, and many, many more, Sage Fast Dog, all these people to pour into me and to bless me and to fulfill a need. Sometimes they didn't even know was a need. And that's why I believe that those teachings from the Lakota and other, I know other tribes have similar, but us being, um, we're all related. When we care for our relatives, our relatives care for us, creation and the creator move for us. So that's why I say, you know, whatever you, wherever you find yourself in this educational ecosystem or even around education, because we know that the whole system of the United States and of, of society is interwoven. So whether you're in housing, you're in healthcare, you're in this, you're in that, like it's all, we're all connected. If you move as a relative, truly looking at the people you serve, it doesn't matter if society says they're beneath you because they make less than you or they're beneath you because they have a different race or, or a group or, or because they're, they're um, you know, uh, sexual orientation or gender identities doesn't match. Put all that aside. You love them as you would if they were your brother, your sister, because they are. The, or the, the universe and God works. He works to take care of you and, and to give you abundantly and above and beyond all you could ever ask or think to ask. And so you go and you work that way with that mindset of abundance. Like I have so much to give and I just, where can I fit in? Where can I lead? Where, how can I serve and walk with my relatives? Then you, you will see how your life is so blessed. So that's what I would say. And you could probably definitely take that down to 150 characters and put it on the LinkedIn or whatever, or 150 words, whatever. But that's what I would say. Think about that, yo. Nah, man. Like, look, you you riffing on that. I just came up with what I think is aptly the title for this episode. We are all related. And Jonathan, I got to thank you for taking time out of your family time, which I know is precious for you to chop it up with me. I'm looking forward to chopping it up with you in Vegas, brother. I'm looking forward to just bracing you, talking, figuring out how we can continue to deepen our relationship because what you said and your power and the voice of you, your family, your 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 native friends and colleagues is that we are all related. When we think mm. like that, it sounds corny, man. Everything is possible. Nothing, mm. nothing is impossible when we know that we all got each other. So Jonathan, thank you. Ronderings, we're out. Later, folks. Peace. That's a wrap. Wow. Jonathan laid some truth bombs in this Ronderings episode. What a way to start it off, fam. There's something he said at the end that really resonated with me, that we are not all free till all of us are free. And I don't think that's easy to believe unless you believe they were all related. And the way that Jonathan you know, spoke, when you believe they're all related in your family, you fight for the people that you love. And so at some level, like the same, the equity work that he and I do. When you, when you have proximity people, you, you get to love them. You have no other way but to want to fight for them and fight for their freedom and fight for their ability to have incredible opportunities in life and to, to flourish. So thank you, Jonathan, for your wisdom. Ronderings, check out more episodes. Come with more fire. Peace. <laughs>